everybody. Welcome to The Well. I am your host, Dylan Bowman. It's great to have you back. We've been off for a couple of weeks while I've been busy working on other projects, but we are back and better than ever. And I have a few really fun episodes coming up here in the next couple of weeks that I think you guys are really going to enjoy, starting with this one here. We're back to talk about politics. (laughs) I know, right? Uh, Stick to sports, right? I'm sure this subject matter might be off-putting or generally exhausting to a lot of you. And I thought about whether I wanted to do this long and hard. um, And ultimately, I made the decision to sort of cross this Rubicon because I really do feel like we're, we're living through a moment in history right now. And like me, I'm sure a lot of you are trying to make sense of the state of our country. And I figured it'd be good for me and potentially useful for you as well to have this conversation in public. So today's guest is an old childhood friend of mine. His name is Alec Garnett. He's a Democratic representative in the state of Colorado and now the speaker-elect in the Colorado State House of Representatives after winning his election a week ago, carrying 85% of the vote in his district. So he's a super smart guy. He's had a great career in politics so far uh, with a lot of I think future potential in the Democratic Party in the state of Colorado and potentially beyond. I think you guys will really like him. But one last thing before we get started on our conversation is I just want to acknowledge that, of course, yes, I did vote for Joe Biden and Kamala Harris in this election. But if you voted the other way, I want you to know that I acknowledge that your vote is every bit as worthy and every bit as important as mine. And your interests and your opinions matter too. This is not an attempt to be a poor sport after victory. It's to better understand our current political environment at this seemingly pivotal moment in our country's history. So as always, I love you guys. Please welcome Alec Garnett. Okay, I'm joined here by my old friend, Alec Garnett. Alec, how are you, my friend? It's good to see you. Dylan, it's such an honor to be on your podcast. It's, it's so fun to catch up. I'm doing great. I'm doing great. Awesome. Well, as I said to you here just before we started recording, this is the first time that we're getting political here on my podcast. And uh, it's an honor to to share that occasion with you, an old friend who is now making his way in the world of politics very successfully in the state of Colorado. Obviously, most of the people who are going to listen to this uh, will be unfamiliar with you and your story. So let, let's start with your background. How'd you start in politics? And, um, you know, where, where does uh, your career find you now yeah thanks dylan and you know no worries um about this being the first time i'm sure everyone who's listening had you know you know at some thanksgiving dinner or at some random you know car wash you know politics came up and they regretted probably talking about it but this is gonna be a lot more friendly than that and um you know politics is a uh it's an interesting business to be in and i started after um, undergrad, I got a master's in public administration. I really fell in love with the policymaking process and some of the policy theory classes that I was taking. And um, I ended up uh, jumping on a campaign in 2006 for a guy, Congressman Ed Perlmutter, who won. And he brought me out to DC and I was on his legislative team at the tender age of 22. And um, I stayed in DC for like three, three years. I climbed the ladder to uh, legislative director for a congressman from New Jersey, um, John Adler, who ended up coming in on the 2008 blue wave and then getting washed out in 2010. Um, and uh, I met my wife on DC and we made our way back to Colorado because that's where my roots are. And um, for your listeners, Dylan and I grew up together in Boulder and playing, you know, two hand touch football and, uh, <laughs> you know, being on the same swim team and stuff like that. So it's been great to to watch Dylan um, rise. And um, so when we came back to Colorado, I was trying to figure out, you know, how can I take these skills and policy and, and apply them um, to, you know, impact the community that I live in. And the house that we bought 
in Capitol Hill in Denver, Colorado, was in one ha- in one state house district. Mm-hmm. And then what happens in every state is after the census um, every 10 years. So in 2010, they did the census. And then in 2011, there's a commission that redraws all the state house lines uh, and state Senate lines. Um, and so they redrew those lines. We, I found myself in a different house district where mm-hmm. the the legislator, current legislator, wasn't going to run again. And so um, based on average age of voter, uh, the district I represent is the youngest in the state of Colorado. Mm. So uh, Emily, my wife, was like, you should just run. Like, go figure it out. See if um, you can win uh, the issues that we care about, student loan debt, child care costs, um, you know, protecting the climate, uh, you know, a lot of issues around uh, housing in Denver. You know, those are the issues that young people care about, too. So maybe they'll support you. So I ran in a really tough primary to get the Democratic nomination in 2014, uh, successfully won that, won the general in 2014, and I won in 14, 16, 18, and I just won uh, last week um, uh, in um, for my fourth term. And mm-hmm. then I was elected Speaker uh, of the House by my um, colleagues um, in, in the House caucus. So it's a huge honor. I'm Speaker of the House in Colorado, which It's a pretty small group of people. So I'm excited to do that. I'm going to serve for two more years and then I'm term limited because in Colorado, we have term limits, which is a really good thing because it's a citizen legislature allows somebody else with, you know, other lived experiences to step up and run and I'll have to fold back into private lives, you know, in one way or another. So um, a lot of people are liking to say I'm the newest former speaker um, because that's something going to be over quickly. Yeah, well, I mean, I, I didn't even think to talk about term limits, but I think that's something that has been on a lot of people's minds on, in the, on the national level as well. I didn't realize that that was the case on the state level in Colorado. So, you know, so you you, you just won your recent election. You're now the speaker-elect in the uh, House of Representatives in the state of Colorado, which is really, really awesome. What was the sort of platform that you ran on and how did you engage your community uh, to encourage them to to vote for you as their representative? Yeah, I think first and foremost, I think people, um, they want access, right? They want to be able to pick up the phone and call their representative if they care um, about an issue or they want to see change. And so, you know, I pretty much I run on you. Here's my cell phone. Here's my personal email. Here's my Twitter handle. Yeah. You can reach me at any of these places. Don't hesitate to reach out. Um, I want to be accessible. This isn't like D.C. I think sometimes people think of local government or state government like they do D.C., where, you know, the districts are big. It's hard to get FaceTime with the uh, yeah. with representative in Congress that you have. But it's totally different on the state level. And so. What I tell people is build a relationship with me. You know, uh, you might be an expert in small business uh, issues. You might be an expert in environmental issues or water issues. And, you know, let me know that. Help teach me. And Uh, you'll be part of the kitchen cabinet. And I'll pick up the phone if we develop that relationship and just call you. So accessibility, I think, is one of the number one things. Um, You know, I think the, um, the other thing is, you know, not being not being afraid to lead uh, and be bold in some of the policy solutions that uh, we want to see. You know, in Colorado, it's like, how do we protect our uh, our public lands? How do we make sure that our air and our water are clean for the next generation of uh, kiddos growing up in Colorado? Um, but at the same time, I'm willing to sit down and listen to people who disagree with me. Because my whole thing is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm pretty smart, but I'm not the smartest guy around. And really what you're doing is you're electing me to be a referee in a fair discussion between people who have opposing ideas yeah. and you have to be able to listen because if you can listen, the legislative process is built to uh, take ideas from people who don't agree with you, but will actually make your solution better and it will minimize unintended consequences. I think sometimes policymakers either will go too big or they won't listen enough and then they, they might not actually, they might solve their problem, but they might create more and then it spends more time kind of going in and cleaning up those problems. So, you know, I think being accessible, being willing to listen to people who disagree with me, and then not being afraid to be bold when the time calls for it are some of the things that uh, my constituents and my neighbors um, can expect from me and, and they've appreciated and, and 
uh, luckily I've earned their confidence over the last few elections. Awesome. So talking about some of those, those bold ideas, those, uh, I think maybe more audacious policy objectives that you've had. I wanted to talk about a couple of things that I know have been important to you and that you've helped to advance within the state. The first being, um, the law that, that allowed sports betting within the state of Colorado. Can you talk about that a bit, how you kind of built consensus around that and how it was good for the state? Yeah, it's a good, um, that's a good question. You know, there's been a lot of a lot of our friends uh, that we grew up with who have texted me, haven't really followed any of my other legislative accomplishments, but have been very <laughs> excited, uh, especially during COVID, um, that uh, they've been able to legally sports bet. Um, you know, uh, Colorado's had a unique relationship with gaming for a very long time. We were the first state to legalize uh, betting, but we've had, uh, you know, it can only happen in the three mountain communities that were old mining towns. And we've never wanted to pierce that veil to bring it down onto the front range. And um, what I was realizing is a lot of our friends were betting on sports, but through apps on their phone that were routing through uh, Shanghai and yeah. off the Cayman Islands. Yeah. And I was like, really? So if you win, what happens? And they're like, well, if you win... Then you try to cash out. And then like two or three months later, a, a Visa gift card will show up in the mail. Yeah. I'm like, oh man, that's kind of sketchy. And <laughs> there's other sketchy. people that, but like there's other people that have like bookies. So um, New Jersey was the first state to legalize. So I started looking at it, you know, in Colorado, you, um, if you want to pass a new tax because of our state constitution, you have to go to the voters and get approval. So I knew that um, if we crafted a regulatory framework, moved it through the legislature, we were going to tax the casinos on their profits in sports betting. So we still had an extra hurdle of going to the ballot. But um, it was clear to me that the market was going to be online, that the future of sports betting is live betting, like actually like when the sport is actually in progress. So, yeah. you know, what's going to happen on this drive or, you know, the lines move as, um, you know, teams, you know, get hot one way yeah. or the other. So um, that, that's all going to happen on their phones. So we essentially created an online framework that, I worked with the regulators. Um, we got 86 of the 100 legislators in the Capitol to vote for it. It was bipartisan and primarily, you know, if you want to do something like this, you got to figure out where to put the tax revenue because that actually incentivizes a lot of legislators who don't care about sports betting to get behind something like this. And so we have a Colorado water plan in uh, the state that is underfunded and to protect, you know, our most precious resource, we need you know, we need revenue. And so um, I decided that the revenue from sports betting, from taxing the casinos would go to the Colorado water plan, mm -hmm. something that we can all get behind. And um, we went to the ballot, the The tax passed with 51.2% mm -hmm. of the vote. So it was a nail biter and um, it went live in May. And so far there's a few tweaks that we have to work on, but so far it's worked really well. It's competitive. It's safe. It's starting to slowly eliminate the black market. And, um, and that revenue that we're collecting is going to go to the water plant. So it's a, it's a pretty cool package. And a lot of other states are looking to it as, you know, the future model as they begin to uh, uh, legalize. And I think before you know it, it's kind of like marijuana where, you know, uh, Colorado kind of leads the way and then other states uh, pick up and start following suit. Yeah, it's so interesting. I was just going to use the cannabis example as well about how that's being used to help fund public education and stuff too. Um, briefly, maybe touch on the, the red flag law uh, before we move on to, you know, sort of more national subjects with a Colorado um, emphasis. Uh, talk about the red flag law, what that meant and, and how you uh, led that charge. Yeah, well, you know, Dylan, you know, you and I grew up in the um, in the Columbine era, and uh, I'm I'm a little bit older than you are, but uh, you know, I'm sure you remember where you were. I remember I was yeah. in uh, I was at Fairview. I was in school at the time, and you know, uh, gun violence is um, unfortunately, you know, something that is um, Colorado sort of always at the forefront of, and we've had some pretty uh, scary, sad tragedies that. Um, have been national news around gun violence. And so, you know, on the state level, um, I was trying to think through creative ways after Parkland um, to pass laws that can help solve problems. And um, in January of, I guess, 2018, there was a sheriff uh, in Douglas County who was responding to a call of a, of a young man who was in a mental health crisis. And, um, in our 
state statutes, you can only intervene and help somebody out when they are in imminent danger to themselves or others. And imminent's a pretty high standard. You have to be in pretty much a mental health break at that point. And so this uh, young sheriff, uh, 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 sheriff uh, deputy Parrish, had shown up to this guy's house earlier that night. And he knew that this guy was unstable, but he had not triggered the imminent uh, threat threshold. So he couldn't go in and take this guy into what they call a 24 or 72 hour hold for a mental health evaluation. Uh, so he had to wait. And so as he waited, um, this young man kind of triggered, went into full, a full break, triggered uh, the imminent threat um, uh, standard. Uh, Deputy Parrish entered the apartment and behind a closed door, uh, this young man was holding an AR-15 and, and killed Deputy Parrish. And uh, so that kind of shocked me, kind of, you know, then Parkland happens. And, uh, and I started meeting with the sheriffs and uh, with the Douglas County Sheriff, Sheriff Spurlock and some other law enforcement officers and saying, listen, there's got to be a different way that we can help uh, bring people to a peaceful resolution before they hit this imminent threat threshold. And so we started working on a red flag law, which is essentially means if somebody is going to, is showing significant risk. So a lower threshold of hurting themselves or others, a family member can, uh, or a law enforcement officer can petition the court to get a, essentially a restraining order on their firearm and step in to temporarily remove their firearm until the person can get treatment uh, until the person's moved through this unstable time in their lives. And then uh, it's up to the court to decide how long the firearm um, is, is essentially held in possession mm. of uh, the law enforcement agency. So it's not, a, I'm going to take your guns forever. It's not, you can't buy your guns. It's not anything about your Second Amendment. It's just about, you know, putting in place some, some safety mechanisms to try to reduce gun violence especially for those people who are at risk of suicide, which Colorado has, it's an epidemic in Colorado. Yep. And, um, and so we finally got it done and it went into effect earlier this year. And there've been some great examples uh, of where it's really worked in all of the fear mongering that came from the far right about, you know, second amendment, and this is going to be used by, you know, the uh, estranged girlfriend who just wants to get back at the boyfriend or whatever. None of that stuff's come to fruition. Uh, it's been used by, I mean, it's a, it's an order from the court. Um, and so all we put in a lot of safety mechanisms that have really made sure that it's worked. Um, so I'm proud of it. And, and there's no doubt that it's saved lives. Cool. Yeah. It seems like very common sense and something that will make a difference without necessarily uh, stepping on people's, you know, perceived constitutional rights. So let's move on to talk a little bit more about what happened this past week uh, on a national level. And, you know, your expertise is obviously within the state of Colorado and that's my home state as well. And something that I still follow very closely uh, during, during all these elections and, you and I are both old enough to remember to when Colorado was a solidly red state. I think the first time I voted was in 2008, and that was uh, the first time Colorado had gone blue in a long time, voted for the last four Democratic nominees for president. I think Biden won by like 13 points in the state. So over the course of our adult lives, it's become uh, a very solidly blue state. To what do you attribute this big swing uh, towards the Democratic Party in, in the state of Colorado? Well, that's a really good, uh, that's a really good question. I think, um, I think two things. I think Colorado is a um, very, very smart electorate. We have, I think, based on uh, per capita, more, you know, college educated people than almost any other state in the country. And so our electorate's always ahead of the rest of the country, whether or not it's in kind of moving in a, in, a, in a broad direction, progressive or conservative, or if it's on like the issues that you and I have already touched on, like, you know, cannabis mm -hmm. or, um, you know, sports betting or other things like that. And so... You know, I think that our electorate, you know, Colorado's never been a huge Trump fan. Even the Republican Party in Colorado was not supportive of Trump in 2016. They actually overwhelmingly supported um, uh, Ted Cruz in 2016. Hmm. And the Republican Party actively fought back against Donald Trump in 2016. And so even some of the Republicans weren't very supportive wow. of Trump. 
Yeah, um, you, don't, you don't see that hardly anywhere I anymore. Know, I know. So even the Republicans were ahead of their time. And, Colorado. Uh, and, um, and then I think two things. I think one, independents drive what happens in Colorado no matter what. We're pretty much split a third, a third, a third. Mm-hmm. And so you have to convince independent voters to support you. And if you can get the independent vote, then you are going to pick up the electoral votes in the state and you're going to win statewide. And there's no doubt that the... Um, uh, that the independent voters are just more moderate and they're very common sense. And so they've never really been attracted to some of the rhetoric that they've been seeing coming out of the Trump administration. And then some of these radical policies that really just, you know, cut against the core values of Coloradans. It just never really caught on. And mm-hmm. so um, you see things like, you know, uh, you know, in 2018, which was uh, Donald Trump's first midterm, mm-hmm. uh, Jared Polis, you know, a progressive Democrat, uh, wins by uh, 11 points, double digits. First Democrat to ever win statewide with double digits in the history of the state. And that's primarily because Republicans stayed home and Democrats were fired up by what they were seeing from uh, Donald Trump. And independents were not had no appetite to hear what the Republican Party was going to say if they weren't going to disavow what what their national leader was talking about. Mm -hmm. And then you fast forward to this election. And just like you said, I mean, Joe Biden winning by 13 points in the state of Colorado, like like unheard of. And, And the biggest swing areas of Colorado were the suburbs. We saw that in many other places in the country. But, you know, Hillary Clinton won the suburbs uh, in Metro uh, Denver by like three or 4%. And uh, Joe Biden won them by 15%. And yeah. so uh, women in particular, uh, you know, abandoned the Republican Party in Colorado and flocked towards Joe Biden and Democrats up and down the ticket. It's so interesting. And it was something that I wanted to talk about as well that we might as well get to now is this this divide between urban and suburban versus rural. And you talked about how Colorado is also a highly educated voting population and even more so than college education level or even race or class. It's now, it's seemingly the biggest dividing lines within the national parties are urban and suburban with democratic um, voters and rural areas, which are very much Republican heavy. How do we as, as Democrats better approach people who don't live in cities and suburbs and help bring our, our message to them? Because it seems now that if the Republican party is becoming sort of like the party of the working class, that Democrats are doing something wrong. Um, and obviously it's good, these statistics that you reference with Biden, you know, outperforming Hillary by 10 points in the Denver suburbs. But how is it that we talk to people who don't live in the suburbs? Like what, what about our message is just failing outside of cities? Yeah, it's such a, such a good question. Like, that's literally the question, I think, of um, the last two presidential elections. Um, you know, we as Democrats, we're proud of the Big Ten, right? And um, I am very proud of uh, the diversity of the Democratic Party. I'm very proud of the fact that, um, you know, when it comes to civil rights issues, I find the Democratic Party wanting to continuously lead the way, whether or not it's for the LGBTQ community, whether or not it's, you know, really leaning in on, um, you know, Black Lives Matter and and making sure, you know, Colorado passed some of the, you know, strongest police reform uh, legislation in the country in a very bipartisan way, actually. Um, But we have to be careful that, um, you know, we, you know, we are proud to represent the Big Ten, but that we don't just only solely focus on the Big Ten. You know, Jamie Harrison and Jim Clyburn in South Carolina essentially pointed out that the defund the police movement um, really took away some of their momentum. And Mm -hmm. I think um, we have to be careful, both parties have to be careful that you don't bend too far to one side or the other ideologically and that you remain uh, pretty much, um, you know, that the people continue to talk about Uh, what matters most to folks in the middle, because the country's in the middle. People in rural Colorado and in urban Colorado mostly are in the middle. And government itself uh, does best in terms of how it functions uh, in society when it's in the middle. 
right? Government's always a little bit behind the nonprofit sector and then a little bit further behind the private sector. And government kind of inches along cleaning up the private sector, but sometimes you see e either side of the party try to put government ahead of everybody else and try to create uh, or try to solve too many problems or too big a problems. And, and that actually throws government outside of the role that it was kind of built to serve. And um, so we just have to be careful that, you know, listen, there are going to be, you know, times where we have to step up and lead and we have to continue to do that. But that doesn't mean we always have to do that. And we have to remember that, you know, we have to be able to talk about, you know, bread and butter issues and how to make sure that ends are meeting in, in, in kitchen tables for everybody, because everyone's worried about the economy. Everyone votes with their pocketbook. Everyone wants to feel like they're working hard and the economy is working for them. And if we if we talked about those issues a little bit more, I think we could do a better job of not immediately alienating people. I think sometimes, I'm, and the right does it too, right? The right can alienate me and just force me out of a conversation right. uh, because they talk about the stuff, the radical stuff on their end. So we just got to be careful about that stuff. And if we can, if we can try to just, you know, lift up everybody, then we're going to be in a place where um, that divide isn't as great, um, but it is an issue. And, um, and I feel like the country is pretty divided right now. Yeah. So I think if you were to sit down with people from, you know, uh, rural areas and urban areas, you would find that their issues are pretty similar. Right. Yeah. The, the hyper polarization, I think is something that's so interesting to think about. I mean, my personal opinion is that it's totally driven by social media and these sort of like information silos that we all live in, but you're right. I mean, because of that polarization, the radicals on both sides of the party just get, or both sides of the political spectrum get so much more, I guess, engagement or amplification than, you know, they, they probably deserve, you know, you've got the, you know, Muslim ban sort of argument on the right, you've got defund the police on the left. And both of those arguments are incredibly alienating to, you know, the, the other side. And, and so we become just more and more entrenched into our, our personal political, uh, opinions and, and uh, information silos. Let's talk a, a little bit about the um, the Senate race, because this was a huge, huge victory in the state of Colorado. Um, obviously, Democrats were forecasted to pick up a few more seats in the Senate, potentially getting the uh, majority on a national level. Uh, turns out that wasn't necessarily the case. There's still a shot with the Georgia runoff elections in, in January. But one of the states that did flip or, or one of the states where Democrats did make gains was the state of Colorado, where former Governor John Hickenlooper um, beat Republican incumbent Cory Gardner, also very convincingly a 10 plus point uh, separation there. Another indication that Colorado is very much a, a blue state. Um, why... Can you talk, do you have a personal relationship with Hickenlooper or Cory Gardner? And, and can you talk a little bit about the Senate race and why that, that matters for the state of Colorado? Yeah. Uh, you know, Cory used to be, Cory Gardner used to be the, um, in the state legislature. And so he actually owns uh, a condo. Like a lot of people who travel from, he, he's from Yuma, Colorado on the Eastern Plains. A lot of people travel or, um, or will rent or buy a condo around the Capitol. And I live in Capitol Hill. So we actually have a condo in my district, like around the corner uh, from my house. So I bump into him actually all the time at the grocery store and other things Well, when we used to go to the grocery store. And um, <laughs> uh, Corey's a really, really nice guy. He is a uh, um, you know, great politician. He is a very kind human being. Um, he, I think, uh, I'll give you my read of the race uh, real quick. I, I'm also, you know, I've also, I know John uh, Hickenlooper, you know, I was in the legislature when he was governor. Uh, he's a, uh, you know, he, he's a collaborator. He, he likes to bring people in and he likes to, you know, hear all sides uh, before he kind of makes a decision on how to move forward. I thought it was a little bizarre that he ran for president. Um, to be totally honest, he doesn't really have that personality. I think that <laughs> president of the United States and, he created a lot of political risk um, by saying, you know, he didn't want to be in the U.S. Senate. And then he actually ended up running for the U.S. Senate. So um, I like John. He's a you know, he's a quirky guy. He comes from the business community. People trust him and respect him. He, he, he moves, you know, he moves kind of incrementally. And I think there's pros and there's cons to that. 
you know, I think what happened in this race is Corey, I loved Mark Udall. Mark Udall uh, was the senator that uh, Corey Garner beat in 2014, you know, a midterm for the Obama administration, a very tight race. Mm. Um, you know, Corey, um, you know, it was just a tough year. And, you know, Mark, I think would say he, he didn't focus in on some of the issues he probably should have focused in on, but regardless, Corey wins. And, um, I think when he was going into this election cycle, he was the first U S Senator to endorse Donald Trump's, uh, reelection campaign. And everyone was like, why would you do that? Cause you live in a state where you have to convince the independent voter to vote. Right. For you. Yeah. If you're just going to adopt, you know, Donald Trump's philosophy and not push back on him in some of these key moments, like, you're not, you're not going to, you know, what are you thinking? Yeah. Think it was like, he was trying to lose like, and especially as Colorado's cool. gotten bluer, you're just like, dude, like, well, did, was there some sort of uh, under the table deal that, uh, you know, he was going to get a cabinet position or something? But, I don't, yeah. Well, I think yeah. he, I think he actually, I think, I think Republicans in Colorado now fear their base more than they fear anybody else. And I yeah. think he actually thought to himself, my gosh, I don't want to have to be dealing with a primary yeah. in the middle of a presidential year. So if I endorse Trump early, maybe people will forget about it by the time it gets to the general election in 2020 and my base will be happy and I won't have to run a primary and I'll raise all this money and I'll do what I did in 2014, which is wait until people get their ballots and then I'll go up on TV and tell everybody that I'm somebody that I'm actually not and just hope that they vote for me. And um, he pretty much ran that game plan. And unfortunately people were paying, paying very close attention and people want to see leadership right? Like in the end, you elect people to go and do a job that you don't have time to do, right? You're too busy putting food on your table and taking your, getting your kids dressed and taking them to school. You're, you're, you want somebody to lead and solve problems and, uh, and you pay attention. And, um, and Corey kind of tried to go under the radar, didn't have any town halls, didn't have any press conferences, refused to push back on the Republican party. And everyone saw it and everyone, uh, you know, turned against him. I saw a photo of him at a bar after their first debate and he looked just dejected. And that was a month and a half before the election. And, and I'm convinced at that point, he knew there was no path. Yeah. And uh, that would be like the Broncos, you know, walking, you know, going into the locker room to get ready for a game, knowing that they had 0% chance of winning. And that's a pretty, yeah. you know, if you're a competitive guy, that's a pretty tough thing to have. Yeah. It's, it was such a mystery. And the, the, both the state of Colorado was one of the first states that was called on election night. And, and also that was the first Senate race that was called, I think, or at least one of the first, one of the first that was potential for a uh, democratic flip uh, that was announced early, early in the night. So that was a, a big victory for Democrats in the state of Colorado. And hopefully we'll get us one step closer to making actually some difference in, in Washington, DC under now Senator uh, John Hickenlooper. Um, so let's get ourselves in even more trouble or at least get me in trouble and talk about the presidential election. And, um, you know, obviously like I'm, I'm mostly curious in, in your opinion, just because, you know, the, the whole week leading up to it, the election night drama, the polls being so off, you know, Biden's, uh, eventual victory and how this like super messy aftermath, what's your takeaway from the presidential election in general? I think the number one takeaway is that everyone should have mail-in ballots, because, <laughs> yeah. especially in a pandemic, right? Because it was like Colorado, I mean, we had the highest turnout. We had nearly 76% of our registered voters uh, vote, which is unbelievable. It's crazy. Uh, and we had most of those ballots counted before seven o'clock on election night. And people, especially in this day and age, they want results like immediately, right? right so I yeah. had this, like, these text threads where people were like, what is happening? And I'm like, you know, if you were following Pennsylvania, you knew that they did this absentee law that allowed for ballots to come in three days after that a lot of the county clerks were going to not count those absentee ballots till starting on Wednesday or Thursday following the election. So I was like, listen, everyone settle in. This is going to be a long night. And I think um, so first, 
Every state should adopt mail-in ballot. Like we want to increase voter participation. It is what is the foundation of our republic. So that's a no-brainer. I right. think it's I, like, and also like the participation. Sorry to cut you off, but the participation was so high this year because it like there's so much anger. You know, like we want the participation right. to be high, absent of anger too. You know, let's like that shouldn't right. be the incentive to vote. Sorry to cut you off. I no, totally. You're right. No, you're totally right. You just you don't need a president threatening to take away your right to vote to incentivize you to go <laughs> yes. out and vote and um so we sort of saw that everywhere you know what was interesting about the polling is that um i didn't know this until the day up and one of my buddies because you can't do it in colorado i don't think but my guy was one of my buddies out of state was like there's betting markets on the presidential uh uh race and i'm like oh i didn't know that what's it at and he was like on election day he was like it's um you can bet a dollar it's like 61 cents on Biden. So you yeah. can bet a dollar and win 39 cents. Yeah. And I was like, oh, that's very different than Nate Silver, right? Nate Silver was putting the election chances at like 85, 90%. Mm-hmm. What was interesting is like the betting markets were closer, I think, to the uh, end all uh, sort of chances of winning the electoral college than some of the polling was. And I think, I think to Nate Silver's credit, that once everything settles, I think we're going to notice that this was actually a landslide election. It was a landslide election in the popular vote for sure. Bigger popular vote win than either Bush uh, presidencies, bigger uh, national popular vote spread than Obama's reelect, obviously bigger than uh, Hillary's. I mean, Joe Biden and, and, and Kamala Harris had a huge landslide popular vote victory. And as we watch, um, these other states, when it comes to the electoral college, uh, fall down. I think you're going to notice that the spread is even bigger. I mean, listen, uh, Pompeo or whatever the dude's name is, who's saying there's going to be a smooth transition to the second uh, Trump presidency today. You know, I, I hope we don't enter a constitutional crisis. Hopefully this is somebody who is a very fragile human being who needs his ego kind of stroked in the and the legal challenges to the election start to fall apart and we can move into the peaceful transition of power, which is how our government has been structured for the, uh, since the founding fathers um, and is the most important part um, of our Republic. Uh, but, um, you know, we'll kind of have to wait and see. We're not there yet. I would have assumed that we would have gotten there. I think another thing I realized is the electoral college is kind of silly, you know, uh, that it, um, it doesn't reflect where uh, the people of the United States of America want to go. And if that's, you know, that seems contrary to, you know, uh, the direction, uh, the future direction of this country. And so in, in Colorado, we we passed national popular vote. The voters backed us up on that. And so once we get to 270, um, you know, we'll hopefully we'll get rid of the electoral electoral college and move forward. Yeah, you can only hope. I mean, I was listening to Nate Silver the other day saying that they expected the national popular vote delta to be somewhere between five and seven million um, in favor of Joe Biden, obviously. And the fact that it could be somewhat close uh, with that type of a popular vote margin, I think, is indicative of some sort of an issue with that electoral uh, college system that should hopefully uh, be looked at. But in this climate, this political climate we're in, it seems like every single thing is a uh, a knockdown drag out battle where there's, it's impossible to get consensus. So, um, you know, we're not holding our breaths on, on that one. But yeah, I did see that Colorado had passed the, uh, the popular vote, um, you know, ballot measure uh, this year as well. So let's talk about the outdoor industry. Obviously, this is very important to people who listen to this podcast. Um, how is uh, COVID impacting the outdoor industry in, in Colorado? And what are we expecting in terms of the upcoming like ski tourism season that's so important to the local economy? Yeah, um, listen, it's, uh, it is a foundation of Colorado's economy. We, it's been part of many conversations that I've had with the governor and with people in the Senate. Um, you know, we, we don't have a very big discretionary budget, but we're thinking through ways to, you know, provide stimulus to, you know, stimulus funds to some of our hardest hit businesses because uh, we have to somehow bridge this gap that we're in now to when we can get to a place where the the virus is a little bit better under control and we can, um, you know, feel safer to open up things. I think that the outdoor industry, um, you know, has uh, 
had different uh, challenges, but also different successes uh, through uh, the pandemic. We have seen, you know, more um, people using our public lands, more citizens using our public lands than ever before, which is amazing. We're talking through sort of emergency funding for our public for our state parks because they're so overused right now and people are all outdoors that we need to make sure that we can, you know, upkeep them, expand them and make sure that people have access to them. Cause it's been, um, I think Coloradans feel lucky that through these challenging times, they've lived in a state with, you know, some of the most beautiful public lands in the entire country. Um, you know, I have talked to, you know, um, you know, fishing guides. I've talked to, uh, I've worked with the ski industry a lot on their guidelines for opening up, um, you know, worked with the governor's office. There's a few hiccups along the way. And I essentially was like, there's no way we can, there's no way we can help our economy uh, recover from this. If for some reason, you know, we are kind of arbitrarily shutting down the ski industry. And so I feel confident that, you know, from big areas to small areas, um, you know, Colorado ski, uh, ski country USA, you know, represents kind of some of the smaller and medium sized and bigger folks. And then obviously working with Vail Resorts on, on getting their guidelines set up, getting them approved by some of the epidemiologists that are in the governor's office at, uh, and some of the public health experts. And I think we're going to get to a place where, you know, we're going to, you know, we're open, right? There's open uh, resorts now. And I think some of the consumer pushback I'm hearing is on signing up for days and stuff like that, but we'll work through that stuff. And I think um, if we can get some moisture in the state, um, uh, then I think the ski season is going to be okay. And it's just such an important part of the economy. Yeah, it's. I recall in all my years in Colorado that it, it feels dry until about a few days before Thanksgiving and you get this miraculous snowstorm. So hopefully that's the the same this year. Um, in the same vein of the, the outdoor industry, obviously the outdoor retailer show has moved from Salt Lake City to, to Denver. My main sponsor, the North Face, has moved their corporate headquarters from Alameda, California to, to Denver, uh, creating a lot of great jobs uh, for, the, for the local economy. Um, are there any other efforts of the state to encourage other outdoor brands or events um, to come to the state, which is obviously like such a mecca of outdoor recreation? Yeah, I think there are, there are uh, because our state government has uh, what I would say revenue shortage. I think that's probably a nice way of putting it. We can't, <laughs> we can't compete with some of the other bigger states, right? We struggle to compete with Utah. We struggle to compete with states like Arizona, uh, where they can do big incentive packages to attract, you know, uh, businesses, uh, Fortune 500, uh, you know, some, you know, medium-sized businesses to the front range uh, into their states. And so, what we've seen is we have to do it through um, our commitment to protecting the outdoors, our commitment to prioritizing the outdoors, and you know, uh, and the attractiveness of living in Colorado for the employees that you want to work uh, for these companies. And so we've actually been pretty, like for the fact that we're as, you know, we're not even competitive at all in the incentive package world. The fact that we've been able to point to all of these other, uh, what I would say balance of life incentives that employees are gonna be able to, to take in um, have been really successful. One thing that we um, need to tackle is transportation infrastructure. And there's no doubt from the ski, you know, going up I-70 to go skiing to, you know, uh, some of the more rural uh, access roads that our infrastructure is falling apart. The same revenue issues that we struggle with in terms of putting together those incentive packages for businesses, we struggle with getting into uh, Colorado's Department of Transportation to solve some of these basic uh, transportation needs. And so that's one, you know, thing that I think you'll see us tackle at the legislature in 2021. It's sort of the great you know, white whale that we've never tackled before. We have to do it. If we want to continue to attract these businesses, if we want to continue to point to our public lands and say, you know, access to our public lands are better than anywhere else, we have to tackle the I-70 issue and, and get that under control so that people can, you know, feel like they can go up and enjoy skiing without sitting in traffic for five hours. Right. Yeah. It's sort of like mini California at this point. When we were kids, we could go, 
we could go sneak out of Boulder and you know, go uh, right. for a little day trip, ski trip uh, without much issue. And it's now a bit of a nightmare, I think, for people on the front range. It was interesting what you said about, you know, the not being able to offer the same sort of like incentive packages to these businesses, but instead offering a commitment to the environment. Because I know with the outdoor retailer show, the reason they moved from Salt Lake City to Denver, at least this is my understanding, correct me if I'm wrong, but was that uh, the Trump administration did the you know, rescinding of some protection of Bears Ears National Monument or whatever it was. And and the outdoor industry, uh, or, or sorry, the outdoor retailer show in a show of solidarity with the environment, with the, the love of public land said, no, this is a bridge too far. The Utah uh, legislature supported this measure and therefore we cannot be in support of the state of Utah. So we're going to look for other places to host uh, this amazing um, trade show, the outdoor retailer show, which now is is in Denver, I think twice a year, of course, I'm sure was canceled this year, but um, a huge, huge win for the state of Colorado simply because, you know, you had the commitment to the environment. So let's talk about the environment a little bit, because that's obviously something that's very important to people who listen to the show as well. What, uh, what are some of your priorities in the state legislature um, to protect the, the beautiful Colorado um, environment and mitigate the dangers of climate change? Yeah, well, you're spot on, on uh, the outdoor retail, retail show. And um again, it's that commitment, right, that we can make um, uh, from the legislative and uh, executive branch leadership level to, um, you know, come together on that stuff. And that's a huge advantage that we have. You know, when it comes to protecting our environment, I think there are um, some challenges that are right in, in front of us. We, you know, we passed some of the most significant oil and gas uh, reforms in the country in 2019. A lot of that was focused on, you know, providing more local control um, to uh, communities around the Front Range because what we were starting to see is the places to drill running into uh, some of the uh, neighborhoods that were being built as people were moving to Colorado. We also, you know, uh, are going through a, a very robust regulatory process at the um, AQCC, the Air Quality Control Commission, uh, to make sure that you know, the oil and gas industry is, is uh, you know, playing by the rules and, and protecting Colorado's air. And so that's the regulatory ramifications of the bill that we passed in 2019 are really where most of the battles are taking place. And I think sometimes legislators even forget that you can pass a law, but the executive branch has to put it into effect. And sometimes it requires these rulemaking hearings within these regulatory bodies that can, you know, put pit big, you know, uh, industry paid attorneys versus, you know, uh, you know, community activists. And, you know, you, you got to stay focused until everything is implemented. So we're in the process of that right now. And I think once we get to the end of that, we're going to feel very proud of uh, the work that we were able to accomplish. I think as you continue to look forward, you know, we wildfire mitigation, you know, we just had three of the biggest wildfires in the history of Colorado uh, here. They um, just terrorize the entire state. The air quality, um, it makes me feel like nothing we can do at the legislature matters around climate control when these fires can rage for months, months. The, the Cameron Peak fire, um, you know, was raging for over a month and a half mm -hmm. uh, and was completely out of control and was like under control and then, you know, jumped a fire line and was so dry, it, it got out of control again. Um, so wildfire mitigation and thinking through, we can't have these events because if they do, the the impact on our climate uh, and the air quality is so great. Um, but I think the I think the number one thing that we're gonna um, uh, you know have to tackle is putting some of these climate change goals that we passed, uh, put them into we passed them in 2018 about you know essentially you know how much uh, you know from the utility industry uh, to you know uh, the state government to residential, all these goals that we put into place for uh, carbon reduction, we're gonna have to make sure that there's some teeth in them and so that people continue to follow and, and meet those goals. And then lastly, we gotta protect Colorado's water from you know, all of the outdoor industries perspective from you know, rafting and, and uh, fly fishing to agriculture. Uh, there's so many technological advancements 
in water efficiency. Um, and there's so much pressure on our watershed um, from the population growth that we have to we have to do more to invest um, in that because we're already really far behind and uh, it's only going to get worse. Yeah, the uh, wildfire thing is so freaking scary all around the West. You know, we live in Oregon now and we had, luckily we only had a week of it, but it was like insane levels of smoke uh, here in the state of California, Northern California, where we used to live. They had like a full month where at least our friends there could very rarely, if ever, actually work out or exercise outside, which is just crazy. And I think hopefully with the transition to the Biden-Harris administration, uh, we'll, we'll start to feel like people actually care because, you know, one of the things that I think is so damaging about this era we've lived through is that, um, you know, the, uh, the, the, the administrate the outgoing administration just doesn't care what's happening in blue states. You know, it just doesn't feel that he needs to look after people who don't vote for him. And, uh, that's an awful thing. And, uh, you know, I'm hopeful that, that Joe will start moving us in the right direction. We can start reversing some of this clearly noticeable, um, you know, warming and, and drying of our climates in the West. And that hopefully, you know, if drought happens in red states that Joe will do the appropriate things to, to help those people as well. Uh, and we can all start feeling like, like Americans again. So uh, I want to talk about my, uh, one of my pet political opinions that uh, I, I discussed with uh, a lot of, you know, the people who I talk about this subject matter with and get your opinion on it. I hope it doesn't get you in trouble, but that is just like my feeling that Democrats are just too soft, you know, just like we often come off as or we seed the, this sort of like position of power unnecessarily, you know, because we don't want to stoop to the level of, of the competition who at this point are, you know, sometimes behave like bullies. Right. Um, and I think because of that, we come off as looking really weak sometimes, you know, and it's something that aggravates me to no end. And, you know, I think there's a lot of voters out there who would love it, love to see a little bit more righteous indignation from their elected leaders and, and actually like see a little bit more fight in the people who we elect to represent us. What's your opinion on that subject matter? Does, do Democrats need to harden up and, and, you know, sometimes behave, maybe uh, have a little bit of a meanness or maybe use a little like ridicule against the the opposition or am I uh, just just too fired up and, and a, a bad person at my core? No, I think it's a it's a really fascinating it's a really fascinating question. And I think um it kind of it kind of focuses in on the intersection of politics and policy. And um so let's there's so many examples that we can choose. I guess I'm kind of in this place where like when you're in the majority, right? So like I've, I've always been in the majority in the house and it's like, you have so much power. Mm -hmm. And what I've actually realized is there's a saying in the chamber where the majority is going to get their way and the minority gets their say. And what I've actually found is we can get our entire agenda done and we can do it in a very polite, very respectful way where we allow the Republicans you know, so we'll take the red flag bill because we talked about it earlier. When I was a majority leader, I was I ran the floor, I ran the calendar, which um, was a delicate balance of uh, working with both sides of the aisle. And so I went up to Patrick Neville, who um, uh, is an like adamant far right gun guy, and yeah. he was the minority leader. And he said, "I hate your bill." I'm like, "I know you hate my bill." And he's like, I, you know, we're going to fight it tooth and nail. I'm like, I know you're going to fight it tooth and nail. I'm like, how much time do you want to fight a tooth and nail on the floor? And he's like, we want, we want 10 hours. So I'm like, okay, great. No problem. 10 hours. We're going to carve out a whole day. We'll take a lunch break. You have 10 full hours to beat this bill up, to run every amendment you want. I'll be on my toes trying to make sure it doesn't get watered down. And you get that. We'll give you 10 hours. So they fought like hell and we fought back. And after 10 hours, the, the, they stopped uh, debating it. And he came up to me, he's like, all right, it's been 10 hours. That's what I said it was going to be. And I was like, great. We called the question, the bill passed. We sent it over to the Senate. It was a great example of how we can respectfully fight with each other. But when you're in the majority, when you have the power, 
you gotta you gotta use it in I think the right you know there's ways to use it the right way and the wrong way. Take the impeachment though as an example where we were a little bit more uh, tough, right? We were like we're gonna impeach the president of the United States. Mm-hmm. You know this is where you know a lot of people wanted us to hold the president accountable to push back, and um, it it wasn't it didn't really didn't really get very far in my opinion. I, it you know it was a long process. I think we did the best we could. But public opinion, partly because of what you were talking about earlier, which is social media and the fact that we sit on our own echo chambers and, and people don't spread across echo chambers and get, you know, shared information. We just sit in our own. It didn't actually work very well. And so Democrats are constantly trying to uh, when you're in the minority, though, there is no question. You just fight like hell because that's all you got is to fight, fight, fight. That's the only thing you have. You push back and fight. It's when you're in the majority that I think you have to figure out, you know, where is it too far policy wise to go where you're going to start to create electoral political risk. And then, um, you know, when the Republicans are being ridiculous, like they were on red flag, they were like in the floor, in the well of the house talking about how they need their guns to shoot coyotes and in, in rural parts of the state, and we were going to come in and confiscate their guns, like had nothing to do with the actual legitimacy of the debate. Yeah. And, my, and then my members would come down and be like, we want to fight back. And I was like, listen, they're about done on this 10 hour thing. I'm like, just don't go down. <laughs> just don't fire them up anymore. There's like a, a strategy to like maybe not pushing back so hard. So I think the question, I mean, there isn't an easy answer. I think the most important thing is that you have majorities and that you have the power. I think once you have the power, then you have to figure out how to use it. And I think that's where no one talks about power. People talk about greed. People talk about, you know, all these different things in our life. No one really understands what it means to have power. I wish my colleagues in the, in the legislature would take a class on what power means, how to use it wisely, what people expect you to do when you have power, how to do it responsibly, because people don't understand power is just like greed. Look at Mitch McConnell. I would say Mitch McConnell overuses his power, right? He's like the most powerful person on the planet and he, he abuses it. And there's, and there are people expect you to kind of be more balanced. So that was a long winded all over the place answer. But the point is you gotta, you should push back when you're in the minority, you always fight and you fight like hell. When you're in the majority, you got to balance it of like, you got to push. It's like an open window. I always think of it as like an open window. How much of your furniture yeah. are you going to force out that window before it's closing? It closes because in America, the pendulum always swings back the other way. Yeah. Yeah. I get what you're saying. My, my feeling is more, or my, I guess my, what I meant more was like on a communications level and stylistically instead of like on a legislative level, like how, sometimes you have to, use better communication to actually call out the opposition in a way that doesn't see this position of power. Because I think, you know, there's so many people who voted for Trump because they're like, oh, he's just, he's tough. You know, he's a businessman. And the fact that we allow him to, to appear as like this powerful, tough person and, you know, by virtue of him occupying that space, we've then become sort of like the soft, like nice, compassionate, you know, team when I think we can balance that, right. We can still be the compassionate team, but with some righteous indignation on a stylistic and, uh, and communications level. I mean, my, my favorite example of this is, you know, I donated a lot to, to the Beto O'Rourke campaign when he was running against Ted Cruz and I just wish he would have been a little bit meaner to him, you know, and, and just called him out for, you know, Trump, Trump called your wife ugly, man. Like, how do you expect the people of Texas to, to, how how do you expect them to trust you to look after their interests when you can't look after your own wife's interests? You know, that's the type of thing I mean. And that's the type of, that's the type of communications I think Democrats are so bad at and that we have to get better at because otherwise they're just going to behave like bullies. And as long as we allow them to, you know, we lose, we'll lose. Anyway, that's my, uh, (laughs) you know, I'm just sad. You're you're spot on. We have no message discipline, right? Exactly has complete message discipline. They stick to one message. They're all on it. They all go in and promote it and they dominate us. And that's partly because we're the big 10 and we're so diverse and Republicans are very homogeneous and they're just the same. And so they latch yeah. on to the message where 
you know, I'm like, hey, we're going to talk about recovery. This is all about economic recovery. This is all the session is going to be about. And I have like 15 members being like, whoa, whoa, whoa. What about this? And what about this? Yeah. What about this? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. It doesn't mean we don't do those things. <laughs> yeah. It just means we only talk about this thing because that's what the people want us to talk about. Yeah. But the message that's put on the Republican Party is very impressive. And the Democrats have never, ever been able to figure it out. Yeah. Anyway, we need to start a consultancy. Um, hey, uh, dude, this has been so fun. I know you got to run here and, uh, yeah, I want, I want to hear what, what's sort of like next for you. I know you're going to be term limited out. So maybe touch on that. If you, if you still feel like you're going to be interested in public service, once your term limit is, is, uh, passed in, uh, your current position and maybe leave us with, a. Uh, maybe some positive vibes for the future, some moments or, or things uh, that are causing some optimism, whether it relates to national politics or local politics in Colorado. Yeah. Well, first, um, Dylan, thanks so much for having me on and for inviting me. And I'm glad now we've like connected because, you know, we follow each other. You and I, I always, I always see when you like my stuff. Um, I, you probably don't see my, like your stuff because uh, you have a better, yeah, I do. Uh, always. Than I do. but we, but we're always connecting that way. It's been really, really fun to, to watch and follow you. And it's been great to be on uh, the podcast. I think, um, you know, uh, public service is a weird thing, right? I describe being in the state legislature, like playing college ball, right? Not a lot of people get to do it, but more, you know, you know, it's one of those things where like few people go on to play in the professional leagues. And, um, a lobbyist once told me an old lobbyist who never lobbied me, but, uh, and since passed, he said, you know, I never, I never lobby freshmen because I don't want to get in the way of their presidential aspirations. And I think what that means is when you win your first election, you're like, oh, my gosh, the sky's the limit. I'm going to run for governor and I'm going to run for U.S. senator and then I'm going to be president of the United States of America. And uh, what I've quickly learned is politics is a weird market, a market that's defined more by timing than uh, really by your own skills. Uh, and um, sometimes you can like maybe move the margin a little bit. But for the most part, it's me like, are you in the right spot at the right time? Like, I, you know, I bought the house. The lines are redrawn. I just happened to be there and it worked out. Um, so I'm very realistic about what the future holds. You know, it's like, I'm, you know, the, the system's built to be a citizen legislature. I'm going to, you know, uh, most likely fold in a private life and, and try to define the, the next uh, part of my career. Uh, hopefully pick a job that uh, doesn't have an artificial time limit and I can continue to improve my craft over time. Um, but, uh, uh, but at the same time, like, you know, the doors, you know, I'm never going to shut the door if it opens up and there's a chance to run for something else. I love I love trying to solve public policy problems and bring people together and listen to them. And and so I feel like I, I do a good job of not putting myself first, but by um, trying to put the, the solution first. So if there's a chance I'll do it, but I'm pretty realistic about that. And uh, I'm, I'm pretty cool just folding in and, and letting someone else take the reins. You know, I'm hopeful about the um, I'm hopeful about the the next few years uh, in in America. You know, the divide feels like it's never been bigger, especially in our sort of generation. You know, I think Biden is going to do a lot to help heal us. You know, it's going to be nice for people not to worry about politics on a daily basis. You know, I think you know when I was growing up in this business 15 years ago, Michael Bennett, who's one of our U.S. senators, he said to me, Alec should I be worried that I walk through the airport and no one knows who I am? <laughs> and I'm like, no, that's actually, it shows the strength of our Republic. Yeah. If you're a U.S. Senator and people don't know who you are, that's because they trust their government. They don't think their government's going to come in and steal their property and like, you know, you know, take more money than they should, or, you know, that they're corrupt or anything like that. And, and people have had to worry about our government too much. People deserve a break. They deserve a chance to go back and follow the things that they love. They deserve to let go of the anxiety that has penetrated their lives for the last four years. And I'm hopeful that the, uh, that the Biden administration is going to help that healing process and then help get us back to worrying about the things that we should be worrying about, which is, you know, uh, the Broncos going to you know, win <laughs> on Sunday. And, um, you know, uh, and I think they're going to help us bridge this gap out of COVID. And what that means is there's no like magic solution, but we can't, it's hard to shut down. We can't shut down anymore. What we yeah. need are tests, right? Like we're getting all these rapid tests into Colorado. People should be able to, if you're going to go somewhere, you should be able to get a rapid test. You should know whether or not you have COVID or not. And if you don't have COVID, then we should find ways to keep the economy churning forward. Um, and that's been some of my frustration with this administration, but I think we'll see that change and we're going to get out of this. And 
before you know, we're going to be traveling again and we're going to be having Thanksgiving with family members again, whether or not you want to do that or not. Want to do that. And, um, and so I look forward to more normal life and we're going to get there before you know it. Yeah. Heck yeah. I got my uh, COVID test yesterday and just got my, my results back, uh, in less than 24 hours here in Oregon. So that's a step in the right direction, but yeah, you know, I, I agree with everything you said and, um, let's, let's hope that the next four years are a little bit easier and that we can tune out of politics a little bit more, but you know, when, uh, when you are term limited out and you decide, uh, what's next, you know, give it, give me a shout. I'll come, uh, volunteer on the communication side of your next campaign. And, uh, right. uh we're going to be we'll, tough. We're, we're going to fight the good head. fight. Yeah. yeah. We're going to beat the hell out of the Republicans <laughs> and be message disciplined and it's going to be awesome. Hell yeah, man. Well, well, thanks so much for joining and, uh, I appreciate it. And, um, yeah, keep fighting for the people of Colorado and, um, yeah, all the best in the future. Thanks Dylan. Great to see you. Thank you guys for listening. I hope I didn't alienate too many of you. I thought Alec did a good job of not being too radical, not being too rash. And uh, I thought that was a useful conversation. Hope you guys agree. You can follow Alec on Twitter using the link that I have in the show notes. He's a good guy, great leader for the state of Colorado. And yeah, more than anything, I hope everybody's doing okay. I hope this is a time to take a step in the right direction as a country, reconcile with friends and family who may have differing political opinions, maybe get back to being one big dysfunctional, but slightly less dysfunctional American family again. Thank you guys so much for listening. It's always great. We'll have more content for you soon. Thanks. Bye.